0: This is the Commercial Property Show, Australia, Show Number Twelve.
1: When I first started buying property, I was paying, you know, seventeen and a half percent interest, and it used to be said amongst my friends and myself that if James locked in, the interest rate was bound to go down.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> um... Hey, how you doing? On this week's episode. Jay Anderson returns to the show to talk about a question that most investors have asked themselves at one point. Should I hire a professional property manager or should I self-manage? He weighs in on both options and explains how to spot a rockstar property manager. He also shares the technology you can leverage to make your life a whole lot easier if you do choose to go down the self-management road. James Dawson shares his 40 years of wisdom securing traditional finance for commercial property. He explains how to figure out what price range you should be looking at and the pros and cons of interest only versus principal and interest payments, locking in a rate versus variable, and even paying down your loan. We discuss current interest rates and LVRs the banks are still willing to go up to. If you are trying to secure finance for your next investment right now, this is going to be really helpful for you. Now, a message from my company, develop a life. At develop a life, we want to help you unlock your financial freedom If you have a big backyard that's getting too hard to maintain and you want to downsize without the trouble of moving, we offer a subdivision service to New South Wales residents. We manage the entire subdivision and sale of the land for you. There could literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting to be unlocked right in your own backyard. Head over to our website to request a free subdivision assessment today. That's www.developalife.com.au. Returning to the show today is Jay Anderson from Jay Anderson Property. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. Thanks. And uh, good to be back on your podcast. Fantastic, mate. Today, I wanted to discuss a piece of the investment puzzle that is sometimes overlooked and underappreciated, and that's property management. Why is it important to have a good quality property manager?
2: Yeah, well, I guess I'll answer it two ways. Because in the commercial space, self-management in commercial properties, probably larger than it is in the resi side. But whether you're self-managing your own property or using a professional property manager, I think it's crucial to you as an investor, successful property manager, wh- whoever's doing it, gives you full insight and control over the health of the property and the portfolio. Because sometimes there is this perception that commercial property can be a bit, of a, a bit more of a set and forget because the tenant's responsible for a lot more things. It is easy to become complacent, but it, it's very important to... Treat it, whether you're self-managing, if you're treating it self-managing, treat it like you are the property manager or engaging a successful property manager. I think it's crucial to the um, longevity and overall success of your portfolio. Okay. So what do you look for when you're choosing a property manager? Experience. And when I say that, I mean, experience in the commercial sector is an absolute must. So not getting a resi property manager who they also do a little bit of commercial, but really seeking out a specific commercial-focused property manager. And furthermore, if they've got specific industry experience, so if you're buying a industrial property or a medical asset or accommodation or office space, whatever it may look like, getting a property manager that's got experience in commercial sector and then in that specific industry. And that same thought process should be applied when selecting a mortgage broker, property lawyer, property manager, any of those professionals when you build yourself around building a commercial portfolio need to have commercial property experience.
0: Yeah, very good advice there. So what are the things that a rockstar property manager will do to set themselves
2: apart from the rest? I think this crosses over into both resi and commercial. I think the biggest thing with successful and top-notch property managers is they have a proactive management approach. So they're not waiting for requests to come in. They're on They're on the front foot. They're updating you on what's happening, what's coming up, whether it's lease renewal, rent increases, whatever it may be. They're onto it before you've even got a chance to think about it, that it's coming up. And then being excellent communicators. So whether they're leveraging technology or, or different communication platforms, whatever it may be, but I think communication is a must for a, a good property manager. Yeah, it's always nice
0: when the property manager treats the asset like it's his own and then, you know, tries to figure out value add strategies for you as well.
2: Yeah, spot on. Yeah. And, and that comes back to having that commercial and industry specific experience, you know, where they can really add more value on top of just, you know, the day to day management.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, mate, where in the acquisition stage would you start looking for a property manager, like in the location if you haven't already got one there?
2: Yeah, typically we do it in the due diligence period. So depending on the, the property or the deal itself, we normally negotiate a 30, 60, even sometimes 90 day due diligence period. And during that due diligence period is where we would go out, see who's experienced and got a footprint in that local, that local area and in that market, interview them, set our expectations on what we expect from them as property managers and get them to put a property management or asset management Proposal forward. And how many managers would you look at there, Jay? Would you have a couple? If it's in an area that we don't have any relationship with or experience with any of the property managers, we're probably two or three. Just gives you a good baseline and a comparison.
0: And would you request like documents or anything they give to their actual client to show them how the property is actually doing? Will you request material?
2: Yeah, yeah. So typically you know, ask them what platform they use. Ask for sample reports, talk about frequency of inspections, frequency of communication. And a lot of it depends on how, I guess, active or hands-on the investor wants to be as well. Like I know for for myself, I want to be in regular contact with my property manager, regardless if anything's happening or not. I think it's important to build that relationship and really treat it like a business relationship. And is it important to find out how many other properties they're managing as well? Yeah, not so much on the, the agency level. But I think on the individual property manager level, it's certainly important. In commercial space, it's not as, I guess, prevalent as it is in resi, where you could have a property manager looking after 150 properties, but probably more specific into, let's say, if we were buying in a major regional town, how many commercial sites they do have under management in, in that area, and what are their star, I guess, or, or showcase properties that are under, under their management.
0: Okay, and so what would the average management cost be for a commercial property?
2: Yeah, so it's, I guess it's really broken down into two different areas. So there's there's a leasing fee, and then there's the ongoing management fee. So commercial property letting or leasing fees normally in the range of 10 to 15% of the annual gross rental, and that depends on the length and the, the size of the lease. To give an example, a lease between 1 and 12 months, you could pay up to 10%. It's a letting fee, and as it goes bigger, it can actually get more expensive. So at least over five years, you know, you could be paying 5% plus GST. The actual ongoing management, typically around 5% for all occupied tenancies. If you had a commercial property that had multiple tenancies in it, and some of them were currently vacant, typically they would provide a discount on the vacant ones, as that would just cover the ongoing facilities management and that's 5% of the, the gross income, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. But many leases either included or you can actually looking at putting it into uh, future leases or lease variations or lease amendments. You can actually look at adding a clause in there that the payment of the agency management fee is to be payable by the tenant.
0: Yeah, that's a really good tip, actually. So is cheaper always better or do you just get what you pay for?
2: I think with anything, price is a consideration, but it also needs to be looked at uh, relative to value that you're getting as well. So certainly not just about price, and it doesn't mean that the most expensive one you pay is going to give you the best service either. So it's more about looking at what they're going to offer you and then maybe comparing that to where their pricing sits relatively relative to other competitors in the space.
0: And I guess it's a relationship thing as well, isn't it? So if you have a good relationship with your manager and you can kind of bounce off each other, it's going to be a lot better than if you're bringing in another guy just because he's cheaper. Yeah, spot on. Is it ever worth
2: managing a property yourself? Yes. However, look, I manage the commercial properties in our own portfolio. But having said that, our properties are in the accommodation sector. So we have a lot of industry knowledge um, in that sector. And you need to understand from the get-go what's involved in self-managing, the complexities of it, and you need to consciously treat it like you're adapting the role of the property manager. So you can't just cut out a property manager and decide to self-manage if you're not willing to actually treat it as a role and as a business within your own portfolio if, for whatever reason, the tenant's become a headache to deal with, you can look at engaging a managing agent later on at that stage. But if you are going to self-manage, it is absolutely crucial that you understand the lease that is in place with your tenants, read it, read it, read it again, and ensure that you've got a good commercial property lawyer on your side that you can always go to to ask any questions. So many of the leases are outlined very clearly for any maintenance or issues, who the responsible party is, what the action to an issue is. So as long as you've got a good understanding of what's involved in that lease and you've got good legal support, um, you know, it it, it may be worth looking at self-managing. What are some of the things that could go wrong? I guess if you don't hear from your tenant for quite a while and you think everything is good and rosy, you might not be doing the the inspections, might not be maintaining good communication with your tenants and things can very quickly get out of hand. Not having in-depth knowledge of tenancy law could potentially come and bite you. And then little things like, you know, if you use if you're owning a commercial property that's not in your local area, Let's say it's in a different state and there are any repairs or maintenance items that need to be attended to that you're responsible for. Even little things like access to reliable tradespeople. Utilising a local agent, you can tap into their their network of trusted tradespeople, stuff like that. If you're trying to do it on your own, you could run into issues. That'll end up costing you more in the long run than, than what the property management fee would have been. Yeah, I guess investing in property, is a, especially
0: commercial property, is a whole different beast in its own, you probably don't really want to be adding any extra workload or, you know, having to understand any more documents than you need to. Is
2: there any software in the marketplace that can assist you with like self-management? Yeah, definitely. So probably the best commercial property management software that I've seen in the market is a product called Released. And more specifically, released with its integration into zero. It really, once you've got more than one commercial property, it just ends up becoming a centralized, streamlined process into a single platform um, where you can see things of you know, lease renewal dates, any rent increases, you can log all your maintenance stuff, do all your invoicing out of. Yeah, cool.
0: I guess that goes straight back into zero, doesn't it? And then at tax time, it's all the information's there. Correct. Yeah. Awesome. So do certain types of commercial property lend themselves
2: to be self-managed more than others? Yeah, look, I'd probably say purely from a time management perspective, single tenanted properties with longer leases. So properties like accommodation, medical, some industrial, some standalone office space, properties with higher turnover of tenants with shorter leases – or properties with multiple tenancies, I would certainly say is best to utilize a property manager. The approach we take with our own portfolio is so we self-manage our commercial properties for the ongoing management, but we engage um, agents to help with, you know, reletting and stuff like that. But the, the ongoing management, we actually do ourselves, but we treat it as an in-house part of our business, essentially. Okay, so it's kind of like a combination. Correct.
0: Yeah, great. That's a great idea. So, mate, in closing, should you self-manage or should you hire out to professional?
2: I think it's really going to depend on the individual. If you've got the time to actually dedicate and focus on the ongoing management part of doing it yourself, then I think it's sometimes worth exploring. If you're new into commercial property, I think it's probably diligent to use a professional property manager.
0: Great advice there, mate. And where can the listeners go to find out more about your services?
2: Just type in Jay Anderson property into Google and we'll be up there or across any of the social media
0: platforms. Fantastic. My guest today has been Jay Anderson. Cheers, buddy.
2: Thanks, mate. Bye.
0: Are you sick of being tied down to a job you hate? Wouldn't you like to choose if and when you want to work? Cash flow from commercial property is one of the best ways to replace your income and wave bye-bye to that day job. It's not unusual to receive 50 to 100 to even 200 thousand dollars of net income from one commercial property. Imagine not having to work, but you still get that paycheck each month. I'm taking steps to make this a reality for me and my family. Like me, the first step you need to take is investing in knowledge. James Dawson's Commercial Property Cash Flow Blueprint is the number one online course on the subject in Australia. If you want to take your commercial investing to the next level, do what I did and invest in yourself first. Go to www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS to check out his free webinar and you can find the affiliate link in the show notes. Returning once again is the creator of the number one online commercial investing course, Mr. James Dawson. How are you, James?
1: Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on again today. It's fantastic.
0: You are very welcome, my friend. The last time you were here, we spoke about due diligence 101. Now it's time to start talking about financing a deal. So at what stage should you start thinking about finance? And then when should you start firming up your plans to fund the deal?
1: What I recommend for anyone starting out is as soon as you get... Uh, As soon as you've worked out what your level of spending is, and we can chat about that later maybe, you basically should start looking at some deals, and then when you get some deals that you seem to have an affinity with or something that you're interested in, even if it's only a a slightly vague interest initially, it's a great idea to run that deal past your broker or bank. Uh, I mean, most people seem to use brokers these days, as I do, and get your broker's opinion i mean it might be something let's say like a a mate of mine was buying a property a few weeks ago five hundred and twenty five thousand dollars he sent it straight off to the broker and she said yes we will lend 80 percent, you know i can get an 80 percent loan on that you will need x amount to put in so boom straight away he knew that he could move forward with that particular level of deal if he wanted to so i think that's got to be done fairly quickly because you know, you don't want to lose momentum and then get too far into the deal and find, oh, you know, hell, I'm 50 grand short of deposit, for example. And that can be demoralising, plus you're losing momentum and not moving forward quickly.
0: What's the calculation you do when you're trying to figure out how much you can afford?
1: Well, look, essentially, in basic terms, I would say that you would generally need work on, say, 30% deposit. Um, Now, also, on top of that, you need about 5% for Cost to buy a property. So let's say you had $150,000. An easy way to work out a rough price range that you might start searching is to simply divide that $150,000 by 30. That gives you $5,000. Times that by 100. That would mean that you could probably start to look in the range of $500,000, something like that. So obviously, when you're starting, if that's your budget, you might decide, well, look, I'm going to look to 600,000 because I might be able to negotiate uh, really well and get the price down uh, or I might be able to perhaps get an 80% loan and there are a lot of 80% loans available for properties under a million dollars so that's just a rough way of doing it but you basically work on roughly 30% and then you do need to add about another 5% for costs you know stamp duty legal fees uh, pest and building reports etc to get into a deal.
0: Yeah, it's good to know exactly what you can afford, isn't it? Because you can kind of get sucked into just looking at anything and then kind of get in that dream mentality where, oh, that'd be great, oh, that'd be good, you know? So uh,
1: it's very, very very good to know exactly what you can afford. Yeah, you really need to focus down. Otherwise, you know, you're going to get sort of bogged down in dreamland, as you say. (laughs) That's a good point.
0: So, mate, you found a deal. You figured out you can actually afford it. Now, you're choosing whether to go principal or interest is it ever a good idea to
1: pay principal and interest on a loan uh look i think this is it's a very very common question and a good question and i think that from my own point of view i like to pay interest only on my loans at least for the first you know three to five years and the simple reason is that the, the repayments are lower because if you're paying, I mean, current um, low interest rates um, are around, say, 25 2.6% on commercial loans. With some banks, that, that one's ANZ, I was just quoting. Um, you know, if you're, if you're borrowing $100,000, your repayments are $2,590 a year, you know. So it's very easy to figure out. If it was principal and interest, it might be, you know, three thousand five hundred a year, a little bit more. Now, one of the big points here is when choosing is that if you do have an interest only loan and you obviously buy a cash flow positive property, which I would only recommend that you do that, as I always say, you know, you could be putting that, that surplus cash flow to one side And you can choose at any time to pay down part of the principal of that loan. Whereas if you get a principal and interest loan from the get go, you've actually got no choice. You're just just locked into paying part of the principal down. And there's nothing wrong with that. And absolutely at the moment, given the current low interest rates, quite often deals will stack up really quite well with principal and interest loans. So if you're buying a property, for example, Shane, seven and a half or eight percent net return and you've got a principal and interest loan at say 2.6 percent you know that's still going to be cash flow positive and you're nibbling down the loan as well yeah it gives you more flexibility doesn't it james just to go
0: interest only and then you could potentially pay down from cash flow anyway and then if you had some
1: kind of major event where you needed to that money you could use other funds for something else rather than being committed that's right. I think, look, it, to me, it's always been about building a cash buffer, and, and nothing more has brought it out, you know, with an example of this, you know, this black swan event with the COVID event. And, you know, I've been banging on for years about keeping a buffer and buying cash flow positive properties. And potentially, if you had a buffer of say fifty or sixty thousand dollars for, a, you know, a smaller property of say four hundred grand, and due to the COVID, the tenant uh, has gone for a few months, well, you could absolutely support that property, probably for almost two years if you wanted to. So it's just very important. Plus, if you want to invest in other cash flow positive properties, cash is king. So when you're going off to the uh, bank or lenders to buy another property, it's okay saying, oh, look, I've got millions of dollars in equity, but they still like to see that you've got cash. And at some stage, you're going to need to write checks. You need to write checks for deposits. You need to write checks for stamp duty and all that. It all can come from equity, of course, but it's just nice to have that balance of perhaps equity in the property and then cash in your bank that you have total control of. And, and I even know some people that would have a loan with one bank, you know, let's say it's the NAB or someone like that, and then they will actually keep their cash buffer in another bank. Perhaps that's a bit paranoid, but just just by way of having you know total control over that cash buffer that they've built up. Yeah, that's a good idea. With the interest rate, would you ever recommend
0: locking in a higher rate for a period of time?
1: Look, I think the thing is, it's a very much a personal thing. And look, it used to be said amongst my friends and myself that if James locked in. The interest rate was bound to go down. (laughs) (laughs) uh, And uh, I, you know, over the years, when I mean, when I first started buying property, I was paying, you know, 17.5% or something like that interest. And when it went down to, say, 9%, I remember locking in uh, a loan and one of my friends said, Oh, look, I wouldn't be doing that. It's going to drop. But I was so paranoid about it going up. I locked in for a couple of years and, of course, it did drop. And likewise, just in the, the immediate, Uh, times we've got now i can remember people a year or so ago saying it's four percent it's not going to go any lower i'm locking my loan in so it's one of those things it's just like an insurance policy i guess but one one strategy which a very high net worth person mentioned to me once um, mark boris it was actually that he said look you know if you're going to lock in your loan maybe just lock in 50 percent because that way you sort of got that spread so you know, if you've got, say, a loan, say, with the ANZ at the moment, they're doing 259 interest only fixed for three years, and then, then it reverts to a 30-year P&I loan. To my mind, having that locked in for three years at 259 even if it did drop to two, who cares, really? You know, at least you know, and a friend of mine's just bought a property based on that sort of loan, and he's just taken that on board and figures, well, if it does drop to 2%, I don't care. I just know what I'm paying. I've got a very good rate. I know what I'm paying for the next three years. and Then I'll go into P&I. So my basic rule would be at the moment, right now, today, I don't think I'd be locking any loan in. There could be further downward movement. It's a bit hard to know, but some people, depending on the level of debt you've got too, if you've got millions and millions of dollars in debt, maybe you would consider now, Talking to the banks and saying, "Hey, look, you know, I'm going to hang on to this property for a long, long time. I'd like to lock in 50 or 60 percent of that loan. And look, each lender too has various versions of how they lock things in, uh, and various versions of penalties if you if you want to get out of that loan. So there's there's a lot of consideration. So it's not something you just want to jump into too quickly without really taking some advice on it. Yeah, I know how you feel, mate. I locked in my home loan at
0: 3.99 a couple of years ago and yes it's looking a bit uh not good for me right now but that actual loan that's locked in finishes at the end of this year so and that's actually the same as what mark burris suggested is it's only like partial of the loan right. that's locked in so it's, yeah uh, and then i've got a, a portion that's variable as well so it's, it's a bit of security but obviously i'm paying way overs right now you. yeah i
1: mean actually i think i mean there's a lot of people who are in the same position but you've done the right thing i guess by doing that you know 50 50 split but let's say you locked in all your loan now there is a calculation you know to to get out of that fixed loan and depending on the difference in the interest rates uh, for some people it might be worth paying the penalty to the bank it might be you know ten twelve thousand dollars to to get out of that fixed loan and then go back onto a variable at a much lower rate and you might find Hey, that's going to pay me back in, you know, six months. So I may as well do it. You know, but yeah, but it's a bit of a lesson, and you've just learnt your lesson, and I certainly learnt <laughs> mine. <laughs> so. yeah.
0: yeah, that's it. I'll have to talk to my mortgage broker about that, actually.
1: Yeah, so, so those things. You know, should be reviewed constantly. Actually, I think in this in this market, every six months at least. Yeah. Wow. Do you think it's ever a good
0: strategy to pay off your
1: commercial property completely? or should you just keep paying interest until it's time to sell? Look, I have this discussion a lot with people and just actually with a, a family member, even even last night we are chatting about a property that they paid 1.8 million for with a $1 million debt. And now we reckon that that property's worth say, 2.7 or 2.8, still with the $1 million debt. So, you know, rolling forward, say, 10 or 12 years time, that property, if they just were paying the interest on that 1 million and not paying anything off the principal, that property could be worth, you know, let's say 6 or 7 million and you're still only owe 1 million. So there's that side of it where you have such a low loan to value ratio of the property that it would hardly matter that you busted your guts, I supposed to pay off 100,000 off that loan. If the property is increased and and I know I've had properties that have gone from, you know, one million to three million, but I still owe the one million. So you're only, you know, at 30% LVR. So, but some people do like to owe no money. You know, another strategy is to pay most of the loan off and thereby keeping the loan account open if you are able to dip back into it. So that's another thing to consider, but these are very personal questions and, and relate very much to people's own risk, you know aversion. You know when I was younger, I was happy to take on a lot of risk. I'm still okay to take on educated risk as I think anyone who is an investor needs to take on an amount of risk, but they have to be educated about it and make sure that it's you know it's pretty safe. But yeah, I mean my personal uh, idea is, as I was talking to someone the other day, Their mindset was they never want to pay a cent off any of their property loans, their investment loans. They want to own their own house, but they're just happy to keep paying the interest on their loans and they've got good cash flow, building up a cash flow buffer, and that's another point. If you have a property that's one hundred or two hundred thousand year cash flow positive, and let's say you owe a million dollars on that property, in five years, you could potentially have five, six, or $700,000 as a buffer. So, in effect, you could pay off the loan at any minute, but you've got that cash to use when and if you want to use it. Yeah. Okay. So,
0: at the end of your interest only period, does it revert back to a PI like a residential home loan, or what happens? Okay. So, this is a
1: really great question. And, you know, people really i think generally when starting investing they're very fearful of you know a lot of the banks to say okay we've got you on an interest only fixed rate loan for three years and then people go oh god what happens at the end of three years well of course say with the ANZ and banks like that they're making it a lot simpler now they're sort of saying okay then you automatically go onto a 30-year P&I loan now if you got to the end or close to the end of that three-year period probably at year two you should be thinking about okay what do i really want to do here do i want to go onto that p and i loan or do i want to renegotiate because there might be an option then to go to the bank and say no look i want to stay at interest only now if they say at year two you still got a year to go of your loan they might say no there's no option to do that james well then what do you do you go back to your broker and say hey i want to move banks now I have personally had some interest-only loans, you know, on bank bills, uh, et cetera, for over 20 years. So the loan term is three years, but then it just, you know, you roll over or you renegotiate with the bank. I've recently moved banks, which just then gave me a further revision back to interest-only, and I did actually put a couple of... I have some residential investments, and I did put a couple of those on P&I. So, look, it really is one of those things that there's so many lending institutions, so many different rules that they have, but I do know people that, you know, if they're not getting their way with the bank they're with, they're very happy to uproot and move on to another bank. But very important thing to note is, you know, don't leave it to the last minute. Don't, if you've got a three or four year loan, Don't leave it to two months before the loan finishes because it might take you six months to sort out what you want to do. But a lot of investors that I know are very happy to stay on interest only as long as they're building up that buffer. So they will do everything in their power to stay on interest only loans. Okay, so is it true that the banks will only give you a loan period as long as the whale? Because
0: I have heard that.
1: Uh, Look, with some banks, that is the case. And look, it comes back to depending on the style of property, the actual lease itself, the type of tenant, all these things come into play. The bank, obviously, they're driven by the valuation document. So if the whale, which a lot of people may not know what that means, it's the weighted average lease expiry date. So essentially, if you've got a single tenant property with a five-year lease and they've got four years to go, the whale is four years, but if you've got a multi-tenant property with, you know, you average out the expiry dates. So in that situation, the bank might say, okay, we want to, when you say the loan period, it might be the initial loan period might match the whale of say four years in that example. It doesn't mean that they're going to stop the loan or want you to pay back the loan at the end of four years. It's just that at the end of four years, you need to say, hey, what are we going to do now? We're going to go on the next, the next period. I mean, the banks are in the business of lending money for property. So, you know, they don't really want everyone just to move at the end of the, the first term. But just using that ANZ example, my friend bought an office in Maroochydore, 525000 about 7.5% net return, Lease is four years with a five-year option, and they've given him a 30-year term. Okay, wow. So, That brings me to the point that all this stuff just changes all the time. So, you know, we we could be talking about this as we are in this podcast, but in three months' time, there could be different products out there and, you know, there's plenty of money out there to borrow and it's just a minefield. And actually, more than ever, I think, Andrew, is, you know, you have to use a broker because the time it would take for you or I to get our heads around what's on offer you'd never be able to buy any property because you'd never have time to look at them. You know, <laughs> so, Yeah, you know, it really, I mean, I used to just talk to my bank managers all the time, you know, rolling back say five, more than five years ago. But now I, I do talk to them, of course, but I solely deal with brokers because they're the ones that say, hey, look, such and such a bank's got a new offer coming out on the first of the month. It's gonna be a 30 year loan, et cetera, et cetera. They'll lend to eighty percent as long as the property's in this location. So all those things can drive your investment choice as well. You know, it's it's not just about the property, it's about the the property, the tenant, the financing and you know, the overall deal, it's balanced out. So obviously if you can only borrow, say, fifty percent on a property you'd probably think, wow, I don't want to have 50% of my cash tied up in that. I want to go and find a property I can borrow 80% of. Yeah, yeah that's right. All right, mate,
0: so what's your stance on cross collateralizing
1: loans? Look, I think there's two thoughts here. I know that uh, a lot of property speakers – and people that we all hear online and when people are doing live talks and all that, they say it's an absolute no-no to have anything cross-collateralized and just have what's called a non-recourse loan or based on that property itself. Uh, but I think the reality is different. I think when an investor's getting going, uh, particularly younger investors, you know, stuff does get all tied up together. And uh, I personally never had a problem with it. You know, I've had uh, properties tied up together and various things for numbers of years at a time. And it's one of those things that you can always sort of refinance and pull a property out and pay the original bank off. And then with the new lender to say, okay, you've just got that property, but that's it. But depending on your setup, and this is something where people would need to get advice from their accountant or financial advisor, if it's a trust or company or something like that, you're most likely going to be signing personal guarantees or company director guarantees. So to me, it's part of being an investor is taking on risk in an educated manner. So sometimes to get a deal together, you'll have to throw one of your other properties in and you could miss out big time by not doing that. And I I certainly wouldn't be in the position I am if I just sat back and said, well, no, I only want to borrow on that particular property and won't put any of my other assets at risk. And then also, as you grow in your investment portfolio, it's about constantly looking at what your overall LVR is. And I remember years ago, LendLease, used to say that they used to like to keep their borrowings down to 40% of the value of their property. And this is when, you know, you could borrow 90% wow. of the properties. And I used to think, wow, 40%, how do they get down to that? But I know a lot of people, including myself, we're down less than that, you know, overall. So if you balance everything out overall. So, and once again, it comes back to your own personal idea of you know how much risk you're willing to take on. And some people, when they're starting investing, are really risk adverse, but when they learn more about it, they say, no, I'm happy to have a crack at this and I need to throw some other stuff in the ring to get this deal done. And that's sometimes the only way you can do it. You mentioned non-recourse finance. I was wondering if you could explain that, what that is. Because I
0: think non-recourse is a really interesting way of mitigating your risk. But say you get the highest LVR you can and then you execute your upsides, your add value strategies, and then you can refinance it to non-recourse to mitigate your risk on that. Can you just explain what that means, James?
1: Well, essentially, non-recourse means that if something goes wrong with a property, the person who's lent the money can get the property, but no further compensation. And what percentage LVR is usually non-recourse? Well, this is where I would say, okay, so this is an interesting subject because when you're going, say, into like low DOC, no DOC, sometimes they call them non-recourse loans, the LVR changes a lot. So it's certainly probably not going to be 80%. It's going to be maybe 65%, maybe even 50%. And depending on the property, actually, I had someone who was looking at a service station recently, and most lenders on that particular deal, because of the type of property and what he was doing, would only lend 50%. And, of course, the interest rate. So, for example, on a no-doc or low-doc commercial loan, the interest rates can vary between, say, 3 and 6% currently at the moment.
0: Well, Can you just explain the type of assets and the
1: lease terms that the banks actually favour I think the biggest thing is at the moment, uh, any bank and any lender will look at all types of deals. Right now, it's interesting, I guess, with the COVID situation. I mean, would you be able to borrow money for a pub or a restaurant style? uh, Sorry, an asset with a restaurant as a tenant, for example. Maybe they would look at that a lot harder than they did 12 months ago. But essentially, industrial, retail, office, I think, are usually the most popular asset types that people buy when they're buying commercial property. And then you've sort of got things like caravan parks, hotels, maybe car washes and sort of other properties that, you know, aren't so common and you will find and then then overlaying that, you've got the location of them. So if it's very, very regional, you might find that some lenders will only lend a 60% on a industrial property in a very, very regional area. Whereas if it was in Byron Bay, they may lend 80%. So I think generally what they're looking for is virtually what you should be looking for as an investor. So it should be a well-positioned asset and, you know, they'll follow the valuation. They will follow the points in the valuation. So well-positioned in an area that's not got too much vacancy, something that would be able to be perhaps adaptable to another use, not so much in the office uh, side of things, but maybe retail and industrial would be like that. Uh, and also a straightforward lease with a, a tenant that's obviously trading well. Now, banks and valuers, I guess, aren't going to look into the tenant as much as the purchaser would, but a valuer would get a feeling probably that they felt that the tenant wasn't trading very well, or if they're in default, well, that's going to be a big red flag for any lender. I guess the thing is that if, and one point I'd just like to make here, I guess, that if you're looking at a particular property, let's let's say it's an industrial property and your broker gives you a range of lenders, you will find that the LVR will vary amongst those lenders, the term of the loan will vary, and the interest rate will vary. So it's it's not an easy decision to work out which way to go. I mean, you know, you might say, okay, I want to borrow as much money as i can i want to go for an 80 percent loan but then if the loan is you know one and a half percent more expensive than something that you've got to put a bit more deposit into you have to weigh up all these things so i think at the moment with so many lenders about that whatever asset class you're looking at you're going to find a lender that will be happy to lend on it it's just the uh the details of that loan that are the real consideration Fantastic, mate. Is there anything else you'd like to add to the subject of traditional finance or we pretty much covered it all? Uh, I think we pretty much covered it all. I think in summary, just people need to really work out roughly what their spending range is going to be. And then when they do find a property, even if it's just something they're vaguely interested in, run it past the lender first, because that'll at least bring up any red flags or at least show them what they may be able to look for next if that's not the right level that they're looking at at the moment.
0: Great advice as always. And if you'd like to learn more about how to use commercial property to reach financial freedom, James has a free webinar that you can directly access via the Commercial Property Show affiliate link, which is www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash cps or you can click on the link in the show notes and james where else can they contact you
1: if you go to jamesdawsonproperty.com.au lots of blog posts there and you will be able to get in touch with my team by that website fantastic mate today's guest has been the james dawson thanks mate thanks andrew thanks for having me on
0: Alright, alright, that brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. So this week's Ripper Resource is none other than The 10x Rule by Grant Cardone. This book is just a really great book that explains exactly what it takes to be successful in business. And it's basically just the activity that you need to take. It's not technical or anything, but it's just, it it pumps you up whenever I'm feeling negative about, you know, what I'm doing about, oh, this is too hard. Why am I even doing this? I listened to that book on the way home and it just gets the juices flowing. It makes you feel better and it makes you want to get up early the next day and start again. So, this is a really great book. I suggest if you own a business or you want to start a business, this is going to really, really help you. I've listened to it multiple times this year already and I'm just going to keep going back to it. So, guys, this week's Ripper Resource is The 10X Rule by Grant Cardone. Thank you for listening to the show. I wanna thank the guests and Kevin McLeod for the music. Hey, can you do me a favor? Tell one person you know about this show. Surely you know one person that is interested in investing. Tell them about the show. Tell them about passive income, how they can change their life. Don't keep this show your little secret. We wanna help as many people as we can. And in the words of Grant Cardone, Pay the price today, so you can pay any price tomorrow. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has
1: been a Developer Live production.